Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. Welcome back to Health Matters. Thanks for joining us again this lovely day here in Sonoma Valley. Uh, Dr. Ned Hoke, as it says, as it's, they said before, welcoming you and well, uh, spending the, the hour with you. Uh, today our program is built around a, a talk with Stan Goldberg, Dr. Stan Goldberg, who is the author of a lovely book called Le- Leaning into Sharp Points, Practical Guidance and Nurturing Support for Caregivers. And as many of our Health Matters listeners know, I have a sort of soft spot for um, Buddhist-inspired uh, books and teachings arising from the Buddhist tradition. Uh, and although there's a, this gentleman indicates a connection with the Buddhist background, it's, this is a very practical book about not Buddhism at all, really, but using some of those principles. But uh, this is a, a practical, sensible book about exactly as he say, a practical guidance to nurturing, support, and caregiving. And uh, he has a lot of um, good advice. And for those of us who've attended and participated in the death of individuals, and in some cases our parents, um, uh, Stan Goldberg has a lot to offer. uh, And he'll be with us in just a few minutes. So prior to that, um, a couple of announcements, uh, something fun. Uh, Dance Anywhere. Uh, this is Dance Anywhere, six continents, 30 countries, and more than 316 cities. Make it happen, Sonoma Plaza, Friday noon. That's March the 30th at noon. Dance Anywhere is being uh, brought to the Sonoma Plaza. You can go to danceanywhere.org. Bring drums, instruments, friends, come rain or shine. Uh, this is from one of our lovely local individuals who... Uh, is connected to the dance world, and whatever what would happen? The, 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 the highlight here is what if the world stopped to dance? Dance anywhere. Um, this is happening, as it said, six continents, thirty countries, three hundred more than three hundred and sixteen cities. Um, obviously, we're doing something other than making war. We're doing something other than making money. We're going to dance. So noon on Friday, March the 30th, bring drums, instruments, friends, come rain or shine. All are welcome. Let the earth beat under your feet. How's that for a plan? I'll be there. Okay, and then uh, this Saturday, the next day, we've gotten all our dancing done. We can take a class with uh, Joanna DeVries, uh, who's going to go on with her Heart Cuisine's Spring 2012 Cooking Series um, between 11 and 1, 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. Forgot to take your vitamins? Boost your immunity with food. This class will give resources as well as recipes. What are the best immune-boosting foods we will be preparing? And, of course, eating two delicious immune-rich soups, shiitake hot and sour soup, and deep immune broth. 
uh, and a fresh vegetable dish. You'll also learn simple shortcuts for preparing great foods. For more information, uh, 707-227-2942 or DevaJ, D-E-V-A-J, at earthlink.net. Space is limited. Early registration is required. But this is, again, this is Saturday, so that's just a little bit away, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Forget to take your vitamins. Boost your immunity with food. Okay. Wonderful cook, uh, very much a local phenomenon, uh, Joanna DeVray. She's uh, been on, been with us on Health Matters here uh, at least once that I can recall. And she's quite famous for her um, allergy-free eating, and uh, she's got a deep and ex- a long experience in the area of um, a comprehensive understanding of food strategies and so on. And she also has a passion for food, and she loves Sonoma Valley, and uh, she brings her expertise to the table of heart cuisine. So, again, uh, Joanna DeVray's, uh this is, should be a lot of fun for, for you if, if you are interested in that topic. So now while we're waiting for uh, Stan Goldberg to join us, which I hopefully he will soon, I'll read a little bit from his book just to kind of get us warmed up, as I often do from these books that I tend to like. Otherwise, I wouldn't have them here. Um, <clears throat> he starts with a note to the reader. He says, how do I address you, the reader? I, I, the use of you is intimate, but assumes that the reader is right in the thick of caregiving responsibilities. We implies that all readers and I share similar experiences, which I know isn't true. Oops, this is probably isn't of use to my, to my listening audience. So let's go on into the first chapter here because <clears throat> you're, you're not reading the book right away. And, and uh, so that information... It's the first sentence in Some Basics. How do I do this, he whispered to me. His wife was resting comfortably in the bedroom through an open door. I heard the rhythmic pulsing of the oxygen regulator. One week before, he had enrolled her in a home-based hospice service. I volunteered with as a uh, bedside assistant. This was my first visit to their home. And we sat in the living room where every flat surface was covered with pictures of them embracing each other, their children, and their grandchildren. And here's our, here's our guest. Welcome to Health Matters. Are you there? Yes, I am. This is Stan Goldberg. Well, hello, Stan. Thank you much, so much for joining us. We just had just stepped into your book. We just got started. We're, we're like three sentences into the f- chapter one, so we're happy to have you, and now we can get you in the flesh, as they say. Well, Thank you. It's a a pleasure and honor to be uh, on your show. Great. Well, as I was telling my listeners, um, I have a soft, as as soon as I received uh, the news of this book and from your publicist, and I, and I recognized that um, this was a, had a Buddhist and had a Buddhist element to the picture of this. I I immediately knew that I was going to be welcoming you to our program because I, I too have, have shared many of the, uh, probably probably things that we have in common. I've I've worked at Zen Hospice in San Francisco. I worked ah. I worked with Frank. Uh, I've I've been a student of Shanru Suzuki and uh, so on. So I I uh, I'm a natural fellow traveler, you might say. <laughs> yes. So, but 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 more important for our listeners' benefit, of course, is is that what I what I love about the book and and what I love about the picture that you present here. Is that you bring not the sutras, but you bring the 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 meaning of the teaching in a way that's very accessible and uh, 
and, and as you uh, or as you uh, indicate, you're a commu- communication uh, disorders therapist. And maybe the a place to start, uh, Stan, would be to describe to our listeners what a communicative or communications uh, distortion therapist does, and what's that what's that background, and how does that reference what we're going to get into here? Yeah. Well, another. Uh Phrase for it is a speech therapist. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And uh, as my mother, you know, would tell people, I'm the kind of person that moves children's tongues when oh. she tried to explain what it is. Oh, but ah. but essentially, it's it's looking at any form of communication mm-hmm. uh, that could range from physiological problems like stuttering and aphasia uh, to difficulties in expressing ideas that are related to some psychological issues. So that was my training. I got my doctorate in in speech-language pathology at the University of Pittsburgh, taught at a small college south of Chicago, and then came out here to San Francisco. And for 25 years, uh, I trained students at the master's level to be speech and language therapists. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that, of course, is, let, let's, the, the next kind of, the next part of uh, a reasonable, uh, for, for me, question is, talk to us a little bit about how you see that background as being so immediately useful in the, in the task of caregiving that you're describing in this book. Well, it's, I, I guess, uh, it's almost a reverse effect. Okay. Um, for 30 years, I mean, my approach to trying to understand the world around me was through words. Mm-hmm. And, and essentially, that's what I try to, t- to teach people to do, is to convey things honestly through the use of words and, and understand what other people are saying. And I think it wasn't until um, I became a hospice volunteer at Zen Hospice that I realized that words were very inadequate to understand what the, what the important things were in life. And it was through the interaction I had with people that I, I came to understand that, yeah, words are fine, and they do convey a lot of factual information. But often the intent of a message comes through with the tone that someone has, their body position, their nonverbal behaviors, uh, and even their breathing. So it it was it was a base. You know, looking at language, that was a base upon which I developed. I think both as a caregiver and as a human being uh, by looking at other ways of communicating. It's it sounds well. It's, it sounds almost exactly as though you had were sort of growing up further beyond which that we, that you had done as a teacher. Oh, absolutely. And 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 this was this was truly another developmental phase of your own personal evolution. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was uh, when I was at the university, uh, I developed prostate cancer, mm-hmm. and uh, I approached, and it was with a an indeterminate prognosis, and my approach. To that was pretty much my approach to everything in life, which at that time was very objective, you know, very clinical, very calculating, very rational. And, um, and I realized that just wasn't taking me where I needed to go to accept that I had cancer and that, you know, if I lived, I would be living forever with it. Um, 
And so the, the people at Zen Hospice, the patients, or the residents there, uh, they became my teachers. And they essentially taught me how to change and how to develop as a human being. And for that, I'm internally grateful. Well, it, it's, and, and we hear those things, of course. We, we heard those things, for those of us who were listening, uh, with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who you've been associated with in terms of her organization anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for many of the sort of death and dying world, there was, there was the, we, we were also, many of us are so grateful that uh, she carried that particular water and, and made alive for us the... Um, and brought death forward for us in in such a way that not only could we could we not sort of deal with it or not acknowledge that it was in the room with us, but it also had a language of transition and a language of important kind of human engagement with it. So it wasn't sort of just sort of an end. It wasn't a, sort of a thing at the very end of something, but it was actually a part of the living process of our of our existence. Exactly. At least for me, that's how I interpreted what uh, Dr. Kubler-Ross kind of brought for me anyway. And so then engaging us in this, in this world of death and dying in such a way that we were actually then, we could see ourselves as participants in the process for ourselves individually as well as those who are, we're loved with. Now suddenly we have an opportunity to be part of it, which at least in my case, we... We, death was always over there. When we were kids, of course, our grandparents died, and we weren't allowed to be near them at the at the end because, well, we didn't they didn't want us to see that, or they didn't want us to be in 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 their way, or whatever it was. And so we've gone through in our culture a t- tremendous amount of transitioning in terms of our positioning of where we are and where we belong in the scheme of things. And of course, you've jumped in even more with this work of caregiving. So. Given all that, that transitioning that has taken place, at least as opportunity transitioning, mm-hmm. what what do you see that your book is is what what niche is it is it trying to fill that possibly some other niches other books of similar nature are not quite as as thoroughly yeah. doing, if you might say. Well, you know what what happened was um, before I started writing this book, I, I looked at some of the other books on caregiving, and right. a lot of them by, uh, by fairly famous people who had money, who had assistance, mm-hmm. um, who were able to have the support at hand to do what they thought they needed to do. And, and as I read these different accounts, I said, you know, this, now this is after, you know, I've been a hospice volunteer for eight years. Right. And, and I looked at it, I said, well, you know, these aren't the people that, that I've been interacting with. <laughs> right. I, I'm, I'm with people who don't have money to hire caregivers or who feel they have no option other than to put someone in a nursing home or have no one to help in their 24-7 uh, caregiving. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, they need something, and I don't think they're getting it uh, by having a celebrity tell them, you know, how spiritual and wonderful caring for their, their let's say, husband was. Because uh, that's not what I was seeing. You know, there, there was wonderful things that were happening, but there also were some terrible things. Mm. So the question then for me was, what could I provide to people who either are caregivers or will become caregivers, and I think everyone at one time will become a caregiver, what can I provide them? 
that is going to make probably one of the most difficult experiences they will ever have better. And, and, I, and I realized that the answers had been provided to me over these years by my hospice patients. Hmm. And what I was able to start seeing is that there were certain things that family caregivers were doing for their loved ones that did two things simultaneously. One was it eased the death of their loved one. And the second is that exact same thing, and I've listed about 100 of them in the book, those same things resulted in less grief and a shorter duration for caregivers. Mm. And they weren't difficult. You know, I mean, it, it, they ranged, I think, in, in psychological difficulty from something as minimal as uh, sitting next to their loved one instead of standing when they talked to them. Um, you know, Frank had gone through a long thing, and in, in, I remember in my training, and many other people said the same thing, is that there is, there is a, a psychological difference that develops from a physical difference in positions. So something like that is just very simple. It, it helps the relationship. It makes the person who is ill feel more equitable. Um, and it's something that the loved one can look back on after, after their, their, their partner or person they're caring for has died and say, you know, I did a good thing. And so that, that's at the very lowest end. At the most difficult end is giving permission for your loved one to die. Um, which is a very hard thing for many people to do. But those who've been able to do that felt very good about that. And again, it reduced the amount of uh, uh, grief that they experienced afterwards. So for me, so that, that really is, is the purpose of the book, Great. is to show caregivers what they can do that will help both the person they're caring for and themselves. And I need to jump in here. We need to take a break. We're at a public service announcement break uh, stand, so I hope you'll just stay online with us and uh, sure. give us a moment to move through that. And for our listeners, we're listening to Stan Goldberg, uh, Dr. Goldberg, leaning into sharp points, sharp points, excuse me, practical guidance and nurturing support for caregivers. We'll be back with you in just a minute at Health Matters KSVY, Sun Sonoma. Thank you for joining us. After School with Popo Show every Monday at 4 o'clock. What's happening, guys? Kids kudos, special guests, sponsors are so welcome for this informative, popular kids radio show. For more information, you can always call 938-0808. Tune in. Yay, Popo! Comedians, musicians, spoken word artists, apply to you? Come to the Corner of the Sky open microphone at the Studebaker Cafe at 248A West Napa Street in Sonoma on Monday nights between 7.30 and 9.30. Share your gifts for applause. (laughs) 
to Sun FM 91.3, KSVY, Sonoma. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke joined today by Dr. Stan Goldberg, the author of Leaning into Sharp Sharp Points, Practical Guidance for and Nurturing Support for Caregivers. Maybe we should right away kind of get through the, the meaning of the title. Perhaps you could describe, Stan, to our yeah. listeners uh, kind of where that came from and how significant that is to this project. It's, it's an old Tibetan saying that if you want to get over those things in your life that give you, that create the greatest fear, instead of pushing away, lean into them. Lean into the sharp points of your life. And only by doing that uh, will you get over them. So that was the title. Uh, and it actually it was the title that I had proposed for the, uh, the prior book, uh, which was a memoir as, as, my, as a hospice volunteer. Uh, and that actually get changed into lessons for the living. So that, that's the derivation of the title. And I, I also want our listeners to have to right away recognize that uh, that you're an accomplished writer. That you've got a number of have several books. I think seven. You've had seven books so far, something like that. And yeah. and you have uh, uh, StanGoldbergWriter.com. Is it? Uh, yes. The, yeah. And so there's a a wonderful uh, <laughs> a wonderful uh, group of. Uh, of elements there at the website and i i mean one of the things that's, that jumps out at me i remember is that this that is so on those days your body feels like a 1980 edsel remember its purpose is to get you from one place to another not to race the daytona 500 and remember and and remember that may and if you remember that maybe nothing will fall off i mean huh. the thing is is that stan you give us um you give us guidance you give us um uh there's probably a Jewish word for sort of a a feeling of wellness, a feeling of fellowship, a feeling of goodwill. And at the same time, you give us the gracefulness of the teaching that you've had all these many years. And you've, you've, you've trans, you've trans transitioned it into fellowship and teaching. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful way you've brought those two feelings together in the, in the nature of the way you write. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm sure you know what I mean. Um, so going to the book itself, um, you, one of the, in, right in the in, the, in some basics of this, the first chapter, you say that we often ent- we often enter relationships we extinct- instinctively know are special, although we may not be able to put our finger on why they are. That's sort of an interesting place to start talking about the the, the engaging of the caregiver role. So maybe you could share with the listeners something about that that statement. Yeah, well, I I think you know something happens when you realize that. The existence of another person depends upon you, and you know it can be for something you know very small, such as uh, when I was caring for someone at the at the Zen hospice, um, he couldn't move a vase from one place to another, but he really wanted to have it somewhere else where he could see it. Well, you know, for me, that, that was, uh, you know, him asking me to do that said to me, he understands that he is now dependent on the simplest things. So it can range from that up to um, there was one man that I cared for, not in, in, in hospice, but this was uh, privately, um, who had ALS and 
for him, um, there was a team of us, and if we didn't feed him through his stomach tube, he would die. It's as simple as that. So, you know, whether, whether we're looking at something that's psychological or something that has a survival basis, it's a very special relationship, and it changes people. It not only changes the person who's dependent, but it changes the person who says, yes, I understand that you're depending upon me, and I'm willingly taking that responsibility. And as you say, in, in, actually right on the next page, you say, we often think of caregiving as a one-way sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And uh, this may define some situations, but not all. And you describe a story with Nick, uh, Nick's single mother. You want to tell that story? Yeah, there was, uh, there was one guy who um, his mother really took care of all of his needs. I mean, he was the, the perpetual, I'm not going to leave the house son. Oh, boy. Uh, and who also got into drugs, got into lots of different problems. And his mother was always there for him. And she just kept providing and providing and providing. Um, to the point also when he got it, when his girlfriend became pregnant and she didn't want to take care of the baby, you know, the mother took care of it. So when the mother developed breast cancer, uh, and I think she was in her 60s or 70s by then, um, she didn't have any money for care and neither did her son. Uh, so he moved in with her and, and he stayed with her and provided all the uh, service she needed until she died. And when people, you know, said to him, you know, made the, the analogy between him and Mother Teresa, um, what he said was, no, you don't understand. She gave me the greatest gift that she could. And, and I think that, um, that kind of experience that people have um, happens quite often. You know, it doesn't mean that there, aren't, there won't be any negative things that will occur. But caregiving is a transformative event. Well, that, that one brings tears to my eyes again. I mean, I've read it now several times, and each time I, I read that last line, she gave me the ultimate gift. I just, it, I, I can't stop myself from tearing up. It is so touching because, of course, having my, having my own mother die in the last several years and going through that process with her and, and, and having that kind of a, having a some, somewhat of a similar experience with her. And, and, uh, but so it goes. So there, in, in the, just on the very next page, it's also you, you talk about how uh, the, the, the uh, comment from Rilke about how um, our greatest fears are the dragons guarding our hearts. And so maybe talk a little bit about how the how that statement sort of fits into the picture of leaning into sharp points. Sure, uh, I mean I'll I'll refer it back to myself because uh, to me that's the most poignant kind of examples when when you can relate to it. Right. I said you know for in my whole training um, within the university uh, really was, was one that emphasized rationality um and you know looking at things through a hard clinical eye and as a and i i was involved in research in clinical research so i was a, i needed to maintain a distance the difficulty though is that when you do something at least for me at least when you do something professionally for so many years that just takes over your personal life and there were things that I know that I wasn't able to do 
with my family and with my friends that had to do um, with adhering to this very rigid structure. So for me, um, the dragons that were guarding my heart had to do with not wanting to experience pain or feelings of inadequacy or, or any of those other things that we're all plagued with but rarely want to talk about. And by bringing in the possibility that I was dying, um, it released those dragons. Mm. I think it allowed me to be a better husband and father uh, and a better friend. Because mm. uh, I, I don't look at things in the same way that I did before. I am more willing to admit when I screw up, which is quite often. Just ask my family, they'll tell you that. Um, and, and I thank people, you know, uh, regardless of how vulnerable I think it might make me. So, you know, I think we all have those kinds of dragons. And it's just trying to figure out how we get rid of them. And for me, it was becoming a hospice volunteer. Which is a tremendous commitment. I mean, in, in my own limited, very limited experience in that particular way, of course, I'm a physician and I practice and all that. And so I'm on an hour-on-hour on, hour on basis, I'm busy caregiving, but I get to go home at night, you know, and I, and I, get, to, and I get to have this sense of a limited encounter. Whereas the, uh, the hospice uh, volunteer, this, this is, it isn't necessarily 24-7 in terms of actually physical FaceTime, but it's, it, it, it holds one's attention in that kind of way. It's, it, it's a very thorough grip on one's existence. But, but even, even being the hospice volunteer uh, gives you the breaks. In, in the book, I talk about uh, my a new understanding about caregiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, it went through different stages. The first one had to do was just very objective, and then the second was as a hospice volunteer. But you know, I knew that no matter how exhausted I was, if I did a, a four-hour shift, I would have two days at right, least. Right. Well, my wife ended up having a stroke, and so she fortunately has recovered completely from it. But uh, for three months, I became a 24-7 caregiver. Um, it wasn't that I couldn't afford to have someone in the house. I just didn't think that with a language component that I would be able to trust anybody to do what I knew needed to happen. Mm. So being a caregiver constantly um, for that three-month period, you know, opened my eyes to, uh, you know, a depth of caregiving that I never really understood. And, and that's, that's why I spent a lot of time in the book talking about a lot of those feelings um, that we don't want to admit that we have, uh, but are absolutely legitimate. And, and, and also they, they well, they, they, they're, they're schooling us in, about life itself, too. I think that part of what I got from your writing, at least as perhaps I was adding my own spin to it as well, but by doing, by carefully stepping through the experiences of feelings, carefully stepping through the different kinds of responses we may have, there's, there's a kind of a, a um, what is it? There's a kind of a strengthening and, and enriching our own sort of 
proactive experience of uh, by by kind of preparing us for what's happening. In other words, part of what I think this book can be helpful for, at least I imagine, and I imagine that's your intention is, is that for someone who's either invested in this project currently or they anticipate, and of course many of us will be participating in this project, it, that that if we familiarize ourselves with the uh, the the piece some of the pieces of the puzzle as you outline those pieces and we begin to deal with the software of it as you do in terms of not only our feelings but the, but a lot of the practicalnesses of it the 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 different re- the different places we can reach out to the different kinds of environments that you mentioned that we should you know should, when we get when we get involved we should we should you know take advantage of the senior centers take advantage of the meals on wheels take it you know really be you, you show us it, you're knitting us into our society, into our into our options, but you're doing it in such a way so that the at least for me as the reader, I I feel like it's I'm not all alone by myself with this project. You know, I mean it's 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 a, it's a, it's the grand social thing that we're all his busy here doing anyway, and yet this is that particular flavor of it which in, which involves this uh, oftentimes uh, progressive and terminal illnesses. So and that, well, that you know, I, that's what I tried to do. It was essentially give a comprehensive view right. of uh, of the experience because right. you know I'm, I, you can you can read some books and they'll talk about just the physical aspects. Other books will talk about how spiritually wonderfully it is. Right. But no one really says you have a little bit of both there, and there's some stuff that you don't want to talk about. Well, I want to let, make sure our listeners get a chance to talk with you, Stan, so I will open our phones now if anybody wants to call in and speak with Stan Goldberg and talk about uh, their situation that's germane to the topic that we're discussing today. Please feel free to give us a call at 933-9133 here. We're here at KSVY Sonoma, or you can call 707-933-9133. We'll be happy to take your call. So um, while we're looking for that, um, you talk about uh, expected expect limited stability. Progressive illness often turns stability on its head. This is uh, again one of those really uh, strong situations, and you and you you characterize it so well. You talk about how we're so used to everything kind of fitting in a place, and you know, or our our exchanges are, that are, are orderly. But you're saying that change isn't orderly at times. It's barely understandable. Yeah. So yeah, it's you know, I I think in terms of change especially with, with caregiving and a loved one, uh, there's two things people have to continually focus on. One is physically, things are always progressing. You know, they may progress sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, but they're always progressing. And, and as the physical condition of a loved one changes, so does a lot of things about that person's personality. The other issue <clears throat> has to do with acceptance of the role someone not only has assumed, but they're evolving into. The person who was highly active and ran for, for you know, half marathons or marathons, who is now confined to a bed, is not the same person that he or she was prior to the illness. So you have that shift also in, in a psychological you know, complexity of the person you're caring for. And sometimes when both of those things work together, and almost inevitably they do, changes in physiology, changes in psychology, you have behaviors you know, emanating from your loved one you may not understand and you may not accept. 
Well, and then there you are. So then do do you find that uh, in for the people who can afford it or people who choose to take advantage of it, are there sort of psychological steps that people can go through that people can, are there kinds of uh, discussion groups? Are there things that where people can actually demonstrate and, and it, uh, where the person who's the loved one, for instance, do, do they, do they have a chance in your experience of, of exploring their own evolving self or do they sort of just sort of just do it? Well, yeah, I, I think probably more of the, the latter point. Right. Um, I, I've been doing a series of workshops in the United States and also in Canada. And I keep asking places, do they have, uh, what kind of support do they have for caregivers, uh, family caregivers who are using hospice services, whether those services are at home or in a standalone facility. And very few places actually have uh, a way for caregivers on an ongoing basis can access information or resources other than the usual visits by members of the hospice team. So the, the answer is no. It's, it's, I think it's inadequate. Um, it's a very difficult thing to set up because, you know, with hospice, the focus is in one direction. Uh, when you have grief groups, and it's a different focus. Caregivers tend to be pretty much on their own, and even if there are uh, resources available for them. The difficulty is who are they going to get to care for the loved one while they go off to a workshop? So that, that's, that's a problem. There are online um, support groups, and some of them are terrific. Others are questionable. You want to give, one, us, you want to give us some ones that you regard as uh, desirable? Uh, yeah, th- there's any of the Alzheimer's groups. There's a, there's a a group called uh, Memory People, um, Caregiver.com. These, these are all you know, fairly good groups. And I think I have a lot of them listed in the back of the book it's, as well. It's a very substantial appendix with many, many suggestions of that type. I need to uh, break again here, take another moment to let our public service announcement people have their say. So please stay, stay with us, Stan Goldberg. Stan Goldberg and his book, Leaning into Sharp Points, Practical Guidance and Nurturing Support for Caregivers. Please stay with us. You're listening to Sun FM 91.3 in Sonoma. Dr. Ned Hoke with Stan Goldberg. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Please stay with us. The California Department of Veterans Affairs works to connect with California veterans, assess their needs, and get them connected to the benefits they've earned through their military service. Whether you're a recently returned veteran or served in the U.S. military decades ago, CalVet can help. Visit www.veterans.ca.gov or call 877-741-8532. 877-741-8532. You served. Now let us serve you. Gardeners, listen up. The Valley of the Moon Garden Club is an organization hosting gardeners at all levels to share and learn about gardening in a fun atmosphere. The club hosts speakers, plant sales, garden tours, and much more. Be a part of this great organization. First Thursday of every month at 7 p.m. at the Vintage House in Sonoma. Call 935-5939. 
935-5939 for more information. You're listening to Sun FM 91.3, KSBY Sonoma. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined by Stan Goldberg. Leaning into Sharp Points is his book, Practical Guidance and Nurturing Support for Caregivers. Again, for our listeners who uh, haven't yet chosen to call, there's still some, a few minutes left, so please uh, feel free to give us a call, 707-933-9133. Have a visit with Stan and get some advice. If uh, I'm sure you, there are probably many of our listeners are, are one way or another involved in caregiving, and I'm sure Stan would have some uh, useful and, and uh, vital advice. So please feel free to give us a call at 933-9133. So Stan, um, one of the things that I, I appreciated among the many things that I appreciated was your, um, your insisting on the, the accurate prognosis so people can kind of look forward and know what to expect. Talk about the difficulty, if you would, and say something about how you experienced that in your own and you, as you discuss it in a variety of ways. But talk about how you have experienced that over the course of the time that you've done this work and how the significant downsides and, 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 and upsides about having this in the, in the best possible way that you imagine it could be. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think for a long period of time, um, I was very critical of physicians who tried to um, soften terminal prognoses. And, and I thought they had an ethical obligation to be honest with their patients. Um, and then I, you know, as I came to realize, I shouldn't expect more physicians than I should expect from the non-medical community. Um, we all have a problem with accepting uh, death. And somehow if, we, if we, we think that if we pretend it doesn't exist or we can just push it off to the future, uh, things will get better or the fears that we think we'll have will never occur as we get closer to that point. Uh, what I found is that even though there might be some initial discomfort or even a lot of discomfort, when someone is told they have a terminal illness, what that does, it gives them an opportunity to take care of those things that will make their death easier. And one of the things that, that and I'm sure you've, you saw it when you were doing hospice as well, is that as people get closer to dying, there are certain things they want to have closure on. They want to finish business. And that could involve saying goodbye, asking for forgiveness, forgiving people, uh, getting things in order so their loved one is, won't be burdened. It can be a variety of things. And if the individual doesn't know they have a terminal diagnosis, they may not have the time they need for that. Uh, my brother-in-law had a brain tumor, and neither his uh, neurologist nor uh, the other physicians were honest with him, you know, that his, his condition was terminal. And he just kept putting things off because he didn't want to accept it and Someone with authority didn't use those words, terminal. Um, and as he got closer to dying, and it became real obvious to him that he was going to die, 
uh, there was this enormous sense of grief because he hadn't been able, he didn't have the time to do what would have been necessary to make his death easier. So, you know, as, as a general rule of thumb, I think it's important, but there are variants, certain cultures um, do, you know, have difficulty with that. Certain people have already indicated to their loved ones they don't want to know that they're dying. And, and I think all of those need to be respected, but a, a blanket do not tell should not. Well, it's, um, it's of course, for, we're still we're pushing against the sort of typical folkways boundaries of, of what has been historically. And, of course, for many years, um, and it wasn't that many years ago, as I'm sure you realize, as an educated person, medical science has moved enormously from, say, 100 years ago. And so what were the, the, the thoughts of the moment, which, were, which many of those are still sort of living in our tissues, and our, they came down to us from our grandparents and so on, what, what was proper to be talking about, what was not proper to be talking about. So we have a tremendous amount of cultural baggage right. around, around the issue of, of death and dying, as, as Elizabeth uh, Kubler-Ross uh, sort of showed us. And, of course, and so you've been able to make peace, it sounds like, with kind of the current situation, and you, you offer what you can, and, and, but I gather that, as, you, as I'm saying, that you, that you have made peace with it. And, and in terms of the fact that, the, and I guess in your brother's, brother-in-law's case, as I, as I read your book, you did make peace with that, and, and you kept your, kept your own counsel, and, and he died as he did, and, and, but, but suffering in the way you described. Right. Now, one of the things that you also talk about, and you you, you define that they call defining the good death. And of course, we all—I mean, I don't know we all, but some of us all wake up most every morning. If we think about death at all, we think about well, if there's going to be one in today, let's have it a good one. And so, let's describe, if you would, uh, talk to us about what a good death is, and and some of our ideas about some of your ideas about it, and and of course, what it is that we can do, our listeners, if even if they don't read your book, or even if they're not in a caregiving environment. What can they do to sort of do the best they can to prepare themselves for as good a death as possible? I realize it's a big question, but... Uh, 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 yeah, a, a number of years ago, I, I attend. I was asked to present a paper um, in, in Europe, and it was a, a conference on death and dying. <clears throat> and the topic was, uh, what's a good death? And the academicians there were talking about concepts um, that I never heard any of my patients use. Things such as self-worth, esteem, um, I forget some of the others. But, wow. but, you know, for me, my patients talked about needing a diaper. You know, they talked about drooling. They talked about very practical things. And what, what I, I've come to realize is that, you know, if, if we want to talk about the good death, we're really talking about a death where we can look back on our lives and have few regrets. And uh, what that means, at least it meant, what it meant to me, is that I live every day as if it's my last. And, you know, if I've done something that offended someone, do I really want to die feeling that I didn't apologize to them? If someone helped me, um, do I want to die not saying thanks to them? 
So by, by leading my life as if every day was my last, I, I tend not to put things off. I take care of them as they happen. And for me, I th- that's, that's how I would define a good death. Your plate is clean. Mm-hmm. You have no regrets. Mm-hmm. You, you've taken care of, of those regrets. Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, some of us, we, we may not even know sometimes what lingers in the, in the background of our attention in terms of unfinished business. So in your experience, are there ways that you encourage people you're working with to the way that, you know, the, in the 12 step program, for instance, there's the, uh, I forget what step it is. The fourth step, I think, where you go over all the things that you have done that has insulted or damaged people. I I never, I've never done anything that formal. uh Um, One of the things that, that I came to realize is that as people get closer to dying, they tend to simplify their lives. And things that are important come to the foreground. Things that aren't important go into the background. So when when a patient starts telling me about something that she is concerned about, that's what I know that I want to help her with. I had one patient um, who had left her teenage daughters uh, about 20 years ago, um, and she got another partner, and she was, they were together for many years until the partner died. And um, the woman was dying uh, from lung cancer. She had reached out to both of her daughters, who were now, I think, in their 30s, uh, and they refused to see her. Well, this was going to be a, a very big thing, I know, it was on her mind. So what I said to her was, you know, why don't we write them a letter? They're not going to come to visit, but what if we wrote them a letter where you could express everything that you felt you wanted them to know about you? And we took three weeks and went through a ream of paper. Wonderful. And and she ended up with just one short sentence. I've always loved you. I've never wanted to hurt you. Wow. And that gave her closure. Wow. Wow. What a wonderful step that was for you, and what a what a generous, uh, you know, op- uh, g- generous process that you provided for. Because of course, the that those kinds of hurts are the kind of hurts that seem sort of impossible to solve, and yet in a, in your communication motif, you were able to pull that out of the out of the sky. So I, I want to go to another. We're getting close to the end here. I guess our listeners are not going to ask any questions, so I guess I'm going to come come up with one of my own. You have, if there is a, one word that should guide you in your journey, it's acceptance. Tell us about what you mean with that. Uh, you know, we we all tend to think that the world should operate under the the guidelines that we use for ourselves, and when we believe that. What tends to happen is we are always judgmental. And when we're judgmental, no one obviously can meet our own standards. No one, is, no one can do things as good as we would want to do them. And by, uh, by believing that our own value system is one that everybody should use, we end up creating situations that are detrimental to us and to the people that we love. If we go with the notion of acceptance, 
what that essentially means is something that um, that a young monk said to me many years ago, and that is we do the best we can given the circumstances of our lives. And in caregiving, the circumstances are unbelievably difficult. So as a caregiver, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to do the best you can given those circumstances. And the more accepting you are of behaviors you don't understand or things that you wouldn't do, the better you can serve the needs of your loved one. Wow. And, of course, for those of us who've had a sitting practice, acceptance, of course, is the, our knees hurt and our, our back aches and whatever it is, you know, but here's a acceptance of a, in, a, in a more mobile sense. I mean, uh, it's a much bigger picture. So this is a really a, a sweet and a kind book, but a practical and, and meaningful book. And, and Stan, it's a really glad I'm glad that I was able to get a chance to visit with you and talk about this interesting topic. So share with our listeners about your website, just a few words, and what, sure. what they might be able to find there. Yeah, the, the website is Stan Goldberg Writer, W-R-I-T-E-R dot com. And on that site, there are at least 75 articles, and they're all free. And they're arranged in different categories. There's articles on illness and aging, articles on end of life, articles on change, uh, and even some poems in there that I've written. So you can just access that and, you know, find whatever you're interested in. uh, And feel free to send it to other people and disseminate it. And Stan, are you giving any readings anywhere in the Bay Area up, soon upcoming? I am actually. There's. I have one coming up in May. Let me take a quick look at there in April. Actually, uh, this is. It's called "Why There Are Words," and it's uh, April twelfth in South Salido and. Uh, all that information is both on my website and it's also on their site. So if you just typed in why there are no, why there are words, you'll find it. Great, Stan. Thanks so much for joining us today on Health Matters. We really enjoyed having you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Good day now. Right. Bye bye. Well, how about that? What a great book, and also what a good uh, a teacher. It's uh, it's that calm kind of practiced voice that, that, that the writing shows and also that we had the pleasure of listening to today here at Health Matters. So I'm, again, thankful thankful for Stan's time to join with us today. So let's see. What have we got? We've got a couple minutes. Um, so let's see. By the way, listeners, if you for those who didn't call in who wanted to, um, of course, you can always go to his website and talk with him more there. Um, it's, it is an interesting book. It's a relatively new book. I, I, was, I generally review people that are coming up here in Sonoma, but he isn't going to be in Sonoma, but he will be in Sausalito. So why not go see him there if you are interested in this topic? And if you cannot pacify your spirit, you let your mind be complicated with desires and worries, your disease will not be cured. To be healthy, you must avoid anger and worry, let, but keep your mind happy, your heart at ease, and your desires at low levels. That's the guidance of the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine. That's the basic book of Chinese medicine. And our Health Matters motto is, still, health care isn't a noun. It's a verb. So, tune us in again next week. Until then, I bid you well.